Hash House and Circle Up. Welcome to On On, the Hash House Harrier podcast for interviews, history, and stories. I'm your host, Ra. Welcome back. We covered a lot of ground with Mr. Peanut in the first two episodes. We'll keep talking Hash House Harrier stories in this episode. Enjoy. I've also seen people who blossomed in leadership and confidence. In my experience, it was no one gave them a chance before in their other organizations or their work. And in the hash, where anybody who's willing can take an opportunity, people have found themselves in a way that they could develop confidence and take on sometimes big projects that are hashed. Oh, for sure. Like if you were to ask their family members or the people they work with, whether or not they thought this person could organize a 500 person camp out weekend, they would go, that's not that person. Yeah. There's definitely, definitely a few examples of that for sure. Made me think too of, there's definitely hashers I've known for like almost 30 years. So 20 plus, 25 plus years. I know their hash name. I might know their first name sometimes i don't <laughs> probably know where they live because maybe i've stayed over at their place if i crashed when i've hashed around the world or even hashers in edmonton but i don't know what they do or i find out 20 years later oh, oh you're a lawyer or oh you drive a school bus or you're a teacher or whichever the hashes come from all walks of life and I think you've mentioned it a few times on the podcast about a couple of hashes where they guess what's the occupation of this hasher. And you could look at three hashers and you wouldn't necessarily know what their occupation is. The millionaires from the garbage collector. Yeah, yeah that's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah. I see that all the time. When you finally find out that this person who is the biggest drunkard, craziest person is actually responsible for got some sort of very distinguished government position that has yeah. responsibility for like the education of children or something. Yeah. And then you realize where nobody was able to find out their real name for quite a while. Yeah. Well, that's right. And and so I think people have sometimes are very guarded about what they do outside the hash. And I kind of pick and choose coworkers in very carefully before I would bring them up to the hash. For the most part, wherever I've worked, they generally will know that I, I run with a hash or some people even know my nickname. You know, other than that, I don't tend to get into a lot of details with it. And I think that's probably pretty common. There's just many different hashers in this world of ours. Now, I was told one time in Cairo, we were in the heyday of Cairo with 150 people to circle. And I'd run a circle that lasted a full hour or more. And it was pr quite a production and acting. And I was in character doing a lot of stuff. And I zoomed off at the end. And I was told later by somebody that somebody walked up to him. And it was I had just taken another job there. And this guy walked up to him and said, is that the guy we just hired? His tone of voice did not sound happy about it. He had no idea. I was in a wig and a monk's outfit, but he still knew who I was. So, <laughs> well, that's, We've had a couple times in Edmonton where unrelated, someone's brought out a coworker or their boss. And that boss or the, the, the working relation didn't know about that that person was in the hash. And it hasn't caused any problems that I'm aware of, but it's happened a few times for sure. You've been in the hash that's long established. You were there fairly after the beginning of Edmonton. You're living away from the city now, but you substantial in the startup of the Toontown and help with Red Deer. What do you think three decades from going forward? What do you see the hash is going to be then? Look, it, yeah. it's changing. I mean, if I think about when I first started hashing, there was no internet. There was a, a phone line, hash hotline phone line you'd call to find out where the next runs were, to find out a contact. 
if, if you were calling coming in visitor, I mean, I remember one of the first things that uh, a fashion friend brought back from one of the interhashes was uh, Magic's interhash uh, contact list book. Uh, I use that, you know, when I went to the the next interhash in Kale was my first one. And I used that book when I went there. I carried it in my backpack. But, you know, by that time there's email, so I could email someone. But even then, email response would sometimes take a couple of days. You didn't have smartphones or any of that sort of stuff happening. It was a different type of hashing back in the 90s, for sure. So I've seen it go from kind of that to then, you know, the internet comes along and now you've got you know, Facebook and other social media ways of meetup and, and other places where people are using to get the word out about hashing. Um, so I've seen how the hash has adapted. I'm really upbeat on seeing kind of a new generation of, of younger hashers coming into the hash and that's great. And they bring life and energy into it. So I see it going on. Obviously, there's been maybe, like I said, a few more walkers than runners, but there's still plenty of people out there who like the search for trail, trying to catch the hair. You know, there's always the arguments of, you know, live hair, dead hair, cans or kegs. There's always something to argue. Technology's already made a difference. Yes. Mostly communications technology. Guesses about what might happen, what future innovations. You think the hashes... Standard in its traditions of the format, or are we going to get hashes that explode out into whole new places? So, so I remember in the early 2000s, if you were caught wearing a Garmin watch <laughs> to a hash run, because one of the oh, uh, idiots I'm on, great guy, great hasher. And of course, back then, it wasn't the slim Fitbit and Apple watches we have now. It was like this big honking that looked like it was something out of Star Trek. You know, and other people were wearing some sort of wearable technology too, but he would post his route, right? Which, of course, wasn't just, well, here's the route where we went, but it was also, here's how long it took me and, you know, my speed and my pace. So kind of borderline competitive side. So he got a few down-downs for that. He sort of eased back. But today, yeah, lots of hashers post their runs on Strava. You know, they post pictures. And to be honest, I think that it becomes part of the appeal because you got people who go on Strava. Like, I'm on Strava, but I'm not doing it to see if I'm faster than anyone else. I, I do it just to keep track of my health. But it's also, it's sometimes fun to see some of the pictures from other people's runs or the routes they do or if they spell out, you know, funny words or pictures. And I know a few hashers have done a few funny pictures on their Strava, that's for sure. With the application or using that technology, it'll come. You know, like, it'll, it'll be part of it and people won't make such a big deal of it. And it helps. The Facebook pages at first people were poo-pooing it but you know as long as you set the privacy right and people aren't posting pictures of everything you know all the stuff that would sometimes get posted if it doesn't get you shut down as a minimum it also could get a person in trouble at work or something else like that so you got to be a little careful but as a way to get the word out as to when the next run is and to share details or stories about other things that are happening or someone's in need hey by the way someone's sick can you go look after anyone got some time to take on a dog sitting for a couple of weeks while, while they're recovering so things like that do um, you engage with the wider hash world international social media i'm administrator on a facebook group on on hashing right so you've got there's the two of them right there's the hash house harriers and then there's the on on hashing one and they both have like i don't know there's a bunch of crossover folks that watch both and one has advertising for you know if you want to promote your hash gear and stuff like that and the other on on podcast uh on on hashing has got i'm taking over strict, everything yes yeah exactly it's got a pretty mind. strict uh no selling, no marketing of stuff. We put a survey out and it was like 90% of members didn't want to have any of that sort of stuff. And there's lots of sites out there right now. 
And that's great. You know, if you want to have a Facebook page or a website that you want to sell your stuff at, that's fantastic. Build your boots. That particular group doesn't want it. So I administer that. I just, we're always trying to keep track because to make sure that there's actual hashers joining, not some bots or others. People are just coming to spam the group with whatever they're trying to sell. Yeah. Is there any other names you want to call it? Like who was actually on stage with you when you made your inner hash bid presentations? Who was that team? So that team at the time, it came up to uh, Cardiff, Big Rubber, Free Woody, Gobble Me, Damon and Strip Freeze were there. I believe actually no reservations. Kakapa were in with, with, oh. with us in Cardiff. The group that was kind of the Empton hash was there. We also had kind of hash ambassadors from kind of all over the hashing world. Folks like Higgins had kind of said, you know, report behind us and give us some positive words. And a bunch of the group who had been promoting Cardiff, of course, they had They'd won Cardiff from running it, had been very supportive in the lead up, but obviously because they were hosting the event, they kind of had to not show any sort of preference either way. Like I said, they were really helpful for us when we were going through all their planning and stuff. You know, over the years, I mean, I was fortunate. I had a chance to meet the wolf when I was in Tasmania and afterwards at a at a hash bar, got introduced by, you know, a common friend. And then years later, when Bumpy and I went to Frankfurt, she was in a Iron Man at the time. The day after the Iron Man, so I contacted Wolf and said, Hey, I'm coming to town. Are you having a hash? Can we come join you? And he said, And I won't try to imitate his thick German accent, <laughs> but he said, Okay. And I, he says, Where are you staying? And I gave him the name of the hotel and he says, Be outside at 623. <laughs> and I was like, Okay. So we stood outside at exactly 623, like clockwork. He drove up in his Mercedes. He had this old 1970s Mercedes, beautiful condition. We hop in, he drove us to the run, we did the run, went to the on-on afterwards, had a few drinks, downed out, and he made sure to get us back to our hotel. And uh, he was just such a fantastic, supportive hasher, and he was great involved in, in many different hashes around the world, really, as he traveled with uh, with tons of great and got a chance to do a lot of things. And there's a lot of, you know, Kenya hashers, I mean, yourself, Rosé, Sex Toy, and, and Hogtown. Other person who really helped us in our hash was Midget Molester. We had interviewed him about his stuff they did with Bandung, and, but he also lives in, in Washington State. He and fucking crazy from Puget Sound Hash came to one of our Northwest hashages. So we got to befriend him. We even gave him his, his second hash name, King Ralph, because of his, his likeness to uh, Ralph Klein, our, uh, our premier of our province at that point in time. When we started to talk about organizing Interhash, he was huge. He's such an organizer and planner himself and workflow and responsibilities. And he, you know, he was helping you know, things like the run logistics and the bus logistics and okay, people, how we're going to make sure the food tables work so that flows, there's no lineups. And, and so he had great ideas and that was hugely helpful for us. He's just oh. a madman with the spreadsheets. Uh, he worked for a year of his life on Interhash for Bador. In 98, after Quo and Perhash, a group of us had ended up in the area of Chinatown just near Medeca, Medeca Stadium. Because, you know, after the stadium closed and the base of the bar was closed, the, the beer was stopping being served. We sort of poured out onto the streets. And in Chinatown, there was no closing time for the restaurants along kind of the main strips. You would go in. The only way they would close is if you drank them dry of beer. So we were, there were literally groups of hashers going from kind of bar to bar. Sitting down and you drink, you know, tiger beer for a buck. After a few hours, they'd run out of beer and you'd go to the next bar. <laughs> That's when I first met Higgins. I met Higgissimo there, Triafuck, and She Muscle Bitch, Codpiece, Neptunus. We were all part of this group that was kind of, I just happened upon them at one of the bars and joined in and <laughs> continued on for the rest of the night. But from that point, once it's 
stayed in touch with them over the years. And it was kind of cool because then when you're kind of in an area and you get to know folks, other people that people probably know, uh, Flying Booger, met him at the Beta Breakers hash in 95 or 96. Wow. He had just started the Half Mind catalog at that point in time. I had just started the Canadian hash links page. It was kind of cool to catch up with him a little bit and have a few chats about, you know, learn a little bit about what he was doing with connecting hashes and hash directories. And then later in 98, KL, we had all the hash webmasters got together to talk about, you know, group sites and things like that for the different countries and having them under, you know, has is go to the hash kind of common site. Again, great to meet D2HD or has missing link. Prof was in and then... Thing. Yes, that's right. Yeah, Pro- Prof was there. Absolutely. Oh, Lickham. That's who I'm thinking of. Who's a character himself? Uh, Switzerland there. Yeah, Lickham will never appear on the podcast. He thinks it's a CIA operation, and so he'll... Yep. Uh, yeah. And, <laughs> he doesn't trust anybody. And he's probably right. Um, <laughs> I've had some pretty fortunate, just serendipitous meeting of folks. I happened to be uh, visiting some friends and in January of 99 and had found out at KL that they were having, I think it was Pan-Asia was happening. It was the Hammersley 1000. That's what it was. I met a couple of Hammersley folks at KL Interhash and they basically told me about this thing coming up and I was going to be in Australia. So I went out to Perth and I joined them there. But that's, that's where I met you know, XYZ from Hammersley and Silver Fox from Mandura and Ferret from the Gold Coast. And a bunch of those folks I ended up reconnecting with years later and they were organizing their events and it was cool. It's definitely, like you said, there's a group of people who travel at the hash, who have traditionally traveled to hash, sometimes regionally, you know, just in their kind of area of the world, sometimes internationally. Yeah, it's neat to hear. I'm pretty familiar with a lot of the people you mentioned that are close acquaintances of yours too. So it's pretty fun to hear their names and some of the people I haven't seen for a little while. How the paths crisscross and entangle all over the world is pretty fun. Are there any other, what are the hash traditions that are key to you? I know you talk about run, drink, singing. It's all kind of maybe and you're all flexible with it. But what is it about hashing that is essential to you? Or you say, you know, being just a big part of your life. People often ask about, you know, how do you start or restart a hash? And like, I think the Edmonton hash where you've got 100 plus people or now maybe it's 80 to 100, whatever the numbers are today. But it's, it's a big group. You know, that's a relatively big hashing group. Because many places you go, it's like 10 people, 15, 20 people, yeah. right? Some people, it's five or six. So with the different sizes often dictate as to how elaborate a hash can be in terms of multiple ways. It gets too big. You can't have it in someone's backyard. If it's too small, then sometimes hard to get people to find people to hair and help out. So there's kind of a magical size where all of a sudden you can kind of get all the kind of key elements to it. But having traveled and hashed in groups of five and hashed in 700 people at Celatar, for a pre-ramble to an interhash, where it was like, there was that many in a single run, and I kind of went, well, that's a lot of people just running around in the same place. There's probably an ideal size of maybe, you know, 50 to 150 people on a run. And even 150 starts to get to be probably too many on a run. Whether or not you have preset trail or whether or not you live hair trail, again, that depends on if you've got a good hair, it doesn't have to be a fast hair, but a smart hair or hairs together and they've done their planning right. You know, they can live hair trail and never get caught with the right a bit of lead time and vice versa. You could have a preset trail that's done really well and you'll have the front of the pack and the back of the pack arrive within five minutes of each other. And you, like I've seen it done. I've had a few that I've haired myself where you know, I'm pretty proud of the fact that 
that you don't lose half the pack and never to be found again, or people have to take some form of transport to get their way back again. So. Have you ever gotten hurt on trail yourself? Other than like, you know, twisting an ankle or something. Nothing requiring any helicopters or overnight, or overnight surgery. Yeah. But no, but we've definitely helped people. We've had a few folks in the Edmonton hash where, you know, someone really, really had a bad knee injury or as they fell, they braced themselves and maybe hurt their wrist or their shoulder. In fact, we have a couple people with dislocated shoulders. A few people will stay back with the individual and make sure they're, they're you know, they're safe until an ambulance can be brought and someone's taken off to the hospital or whatever needs to happen. I've been fortunate in that since I haven't had any serious injuries. Of, obviously, there have been, you go on enough runs, something happens somewhere and even to the worst sort of scenarios. I always say if the, the bad side of if I were to die on the hash is the hashers who have to be there to take care of me and worry about that because that's the horrible part of it. But for me, on a very selfish manner, I'd, I'd rather die doing something I love doing versus you know, at a desk working away on a computer for, for work or something that doesn't mean as much to me in that sense. Yeah. Have you heard about what happened with Inner Americas? Yes. The timeline of this that we're talking is uh, going to be a few weeks before this interview gets published. Have any comment on the Inner Americas fiasco? Being someone who's organized hash events that we started out right off the hop of, we had a dozen people. Some of them aren't out in the limelight, but you know, we had a banker involved in helping us with our numbers and our accounting to make sure that what we were doing was right and that we'd be able to move money around, right? Because we were worried about how we'd be able to accept registrations. When we were doing it, it wasn't maybe easy easy as today where you can PayPal or otherwise. But we were kind of thinking about those sorts of things of how do we just the, the logistics of making sure that we can collect the money, safely store it, take care of it. We had a couple of accountants in the group who were making sure that we had the right things we were doing. We had a, a tax person who was helping us out to make sure if there was a way for us to pay zero tax, minimal tax, get ourselves registered as a not-for-profit in Canada, all the things like that. So we had lots of really good advisors and we had a nice pool of people to draw from. And there were enough people and it was organized enough that guarantee you. I mean, we were given, I think, $20,000, $25,000 from the local authorities in, in Edmonton as part of like the Tourism Authority or whatever gave us that money to go and promote mm. bringing people to Edmonton for Interhash. And we ended up, like, like we even had a bit of a party at the end, but we still returned like $1,000 at the end of it because we'd watched our dollars. We budgeted what we we're supposed to do and we delivered on the promise of promoting Edmonton. And when it was all said and finished, we we asked ourselves, do we want to try this again? Because if we do, we'll use that extra $1,000 to go back and ask for more money and promote again and get going. But I think the group in Edmonton was kind of tired and didn't want to go that route. But I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is our group, we kind of had a plan and we were responsible in how we did it. You know, from what I know, I, it's all secondhand and what I've read about what happened with, in Columbia there is small group, probably not that terribly well organized. Unfortunately, you know, if you don't know the organizing group behind what you're signing up for, sending your money, you may or may not get something from it. And I, I, I feel horribly for the people who registered for that event. And, you know, now their money's basically gone. That's the terrible side of it. But, you know, having organized an event, I can say that, yeah, it's a small group of people who maybe aren't, don't have those resources to draw from to kind of keep them pointed in the straight and narrow. Yeah, it's unfortunate it went that way. Plenty of opinions about all the things that happened all along. But I'd just say that my take, which I haven't seen anybody really come out loudly say is there have been tens of thousands of hash events where people collected money. 
And this stands out glaringly as a minor, tiny, minuscule fraction of the events of misbehavior. And I don't even know how much misbehavior there was and how much incompetence there was on on a big scale of a, a crash and burn. It's significantly microscopically rare. That's my big impression oh, of well, what yeah. we learned from this. Yeah. In terms of number of times this happens, absolutely. I remember being to a few inner hashes where you'd see the counting report that would come out afterwards. And sometimes you look at some of the numbers and kind of go, that seems kind of funny. But I always thought to myself, if I really cared enough, like I went, I paid my hundred bucks, I got my beer, I ate my food, I went on some runs, I met a whole bunch of great people, I got my money's worth. If those things hadn't happened, maybe I might have asked more questions afterwards where that thousand dollars or two thousand dollars went or something that might seem dodgy. And it probably wasn't dodgy. It just do you want to publish the details of the counting or do you want to have more pictures of all the people having fun, which is usually what those wrap-up booklets would be about, right? No, I agree. I think it's a rare time I've been to hash events. I mean, I've been said hashing since the early 90s, and I've seen a wide range and different size of events. Talked about Kuching. There was all the questions about, you know, the voting and stuff in Kuching. And there were some questions, well, even some of the questions about, you know, lineups and food. And there was a few things that were a little, little less than normal. But fundamentally, did I get my money's worth that weekend? Yeah, absolutely. Had a great time. And I haven't not had a great time at an inner hash event. I, like I said, I do, I do feel for the folks that were unfortunately, anyone who's registered. And it'd be good that there's going to be a bit of a, it sounds like there'll be a bit of a kind of pick up hash approach or bring your own hash type event thing, at least for people who can't get out of their flights and can't get out of their hotel bookings and other things that they may be arrangements they've made. That's the way most hashers' memories work. It's always just great events and it's because of the people. I mean, when we look back at the logistics, we could name events and say, yeah, remember how bad the beer line was or the food was a disaster. There's a lot of things that go wrong and we're a well forgiving group because it's not professionally run. That's okay. And that's how it works. In situations like this, though they're rare, the anger isn't about the money. It's about the broken trust that we all yep. feel or project onto the hashing tribe and say, no one rips ourselves off. And that's the offense, even if there's a a whiff of it. If people have not put in decades earning the goodwill, they don't get the benefit of the doubt that others would and say, well, we know they're good. We know they're hashers. We're not going to look into this until there's hard evidence against them. In some cases, it's they haven't earned that yet. And that's when this feeling of betrayal is really the point here. Oh, you bet. I mean, if I think of my time hashing, and maybe some of it I was just young and stupid, which is probably the case. But there was a time where I would go to a hash event, whether it was a local event or a travel hash thing, and I'd have my backpack and whether it had a hash logo on it and whatever. But I mean, I might leave my wallet with my driver's license or passport in the backpack with cash in it, uh, throw it in a van and an E to B, and it's just going to show up at the other end. Now, somewhere along the way, as I got older, and maybe there's more things to be lost or more risk, probably a little more cautious today. I don't know if I would do that today exactly. But what do I trust other hashers? I mean, I've literally left the key for a hasher that I've never met. This is back when I lived in Edmonton. Never met them. But they contacted me. Oh, I'm going to be coming to Edmonton. Well, I'm actually away that weekend, but you can stay at my place. Keys under the doormat. You know, let yourself in. There's beer in the fridge. Just try to leave it similarly cleanliness to the way you left it. Because yeah, yeah. Not have been, it may not have been clean when I left it. But, you know, that sort of a thing of that level of trust 
As long as you're within one or two degrees of separation Correct. from yeah. that hasher, yeah. There's the famous Kevin Bacon, seven degrees. I think the hash world is three degrees of separation. Every person in hashing is no more than three degrees away from every other I, hasher. I believe you're correct. I mean, I think you and I met, or I know you were the RA in 98 at one of the runs there. I think we may have met the year before at uh, Hogtown Hash. I, I wasn't back to North America you, for a long time. That's right. Yeah, you came with It was 98. And we, 98, we, were yeah. on a bus, we were on a bus together in 2000 at one yes. of the trails. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. But you meet someone, you get to know them. And like you said, then all of a sudden, you know, their circle of people you've met. If it wasn't for, you know, Sex Toy and Rosé, I wouldn't have met as many people when I got to Interhash in 98. I didn't follow them around everywhere. But probably on the Friday night, I got introduced to 25 or 30 people that there's no way I would have met them otherwise. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody knew Rosé and Sex Toy as the two Canadian singing ladies in the late 90s. Everybody knew them all the way through the 90s. And even if they didn't introduce me, if someone said, oh, you're from Canada, because I might have like a Canadian flag on my back. Oh, do you know Sex Toy and Rosé? And I'd be like, yeah, of course I know them. I just hashed with them a few weeks ago in Toronto. Oh, that's great. The fellowship is a huge thing. Hospitality has been something that I've experienced far more than I'll ever be able to pay forward. But that's, again, where you know my generosity and paying it forward to hashers has always been based on the fact that I've had more rides from the airport or couches to crash on or, or some help in some way or form another from hashers. And we started doing the uh, where have I hashed. Like, I really like the fact that, okay, you go in there and you could identify where you hash. But then there was that ability to also say, hey, if you want to list your contact details so there's a hot link on your name, then all of a sudden you can get an email and that way it goes to my contact if, if I choose to be or if I don't want to, but I still want to have my stats there or I want my hash name listed with the other thousands of names. Let me ask you for the record, is the RA always right? Yes, the RA is always right. <laughs> <laughs> not not it's, this it's, one, but I mean, in gen, when, when you're know, RA, I've, are you always right? I've RA'd for other hashes, like I RA'd a bit for Red Deer when they needed someone to fill in or for Sarnia. I did RA for the 2019-2020 year, so I basically half the year got cut off by the games we had of COVID, you know, so I only got half of the year being RA, but co-RA, you, you know, I've done it and, and I, I think the thing I saw over the years for us especially is, you know, if you're running the circle, you need to pay attention to the RA, otherwise you're going to get punished. Right, you get a down, down, or you get a punishment. And I've seen some great RAs, like just the ones who are amazing at it have got such charisma and such just natural flow that there's always something interesting happening. And there's a few of them they do it because you know they've got their prepared notes and lists, and they don't necessarily refer back to them, but you can just tell because you, you see these folks kind of getting ready beforehand, getting themselves all psyched up, and they hit it. And then, of course, there's the ones who shoot completely from the hip and a good RA is an amazing benefit to the pack, can make or break a down-down circle. Yeah. Was there any come to mind that if you were picking between trails, you might say, oh, well, if they're going to be RA, I'll go on that trail. So internationally, yeah. I mean, Higgins, for me, stands out. that, And he's partnered up with a couple of folks over the years, and you've seen it. Honestly, and I'm not just saying because you're right here, I, I always appreciate your circles. You keep things going, keep the activities and that sort of stuff. We had a couple of folks come up from the Oregon and for the Pacific Northwest interhash this past year. And they did a great job with the circles that we had at the Northwest. Thursday night 
Yeah, the North Pacific Northwest Hashigen that was held in Edmonton this past year. I should give some kudos to uh, Iger Pevert and uh, True Trail Hash because we're talking before about you know younger hashes, etc. and so forth. And I've got to give some credit that as much as the main Edmonton hash has had some young people come into, but some of that's cross mingling with some of the young hashes who've joined True Trail, and uh, it's been great. Eager joined our hash. Can't remember what it was probably about six, seven years ago. And he had met Rubber Tits. Rubber Tits. Eager Beaver met Rubber Tits. Rubber Tits was part of a group of Edmonton hashes that did the Pacific Northwest hashes down in Portland, uh, probably about 15 years ago. Ah. 15 years ago when they first met, carried on a bit of a long distance relationship over a period of time. Eventually, you know, decisions made. He's going to move up to Edmonton and they got married but he started a new hash in Edmonton on Thursday nights the true trail hash. for me it's been a welcome addition to hashing in Edmonton because it's new perspective different trail markings slightly different approach to down down circles and how they go and of course eager was the driving force behind getting the Pacific North West inner hash coming up to Edmonton this past year but what he's also helped with is bringing that group has encouraged and attracted some, you know, younger members, younger new hashers into the pack. And some of them will go to the main hash and some of them will go to True Trail or, and some go to both. And it's been great to kind of improve the diversity of the hash. Yeah. Edmonton keeps bringing people there to get married or they find these Edmonton people and move there. Yeah. So, but that is very encouraging. I know a lot of pastors will talk about that. There's concern about the future, but that's a great sign. So, you know, one of the things, you know, I've got to give some kudos to uh, with the online podcast is that we had uh, Nookie passed away you know, a few months ago, but he had been on your podcast just over a year ago on his 93rd birthday. And he was just a few weeks shy of his 94th birthday when, when he passed. And to be honest, I still keep his two podcast episodes on my phone. I listen to them regularly. It's really great to hear his voice, but hear his stories. And I know a bunch of folks in the Edmonton area, you know, they're super happy that they've got that memory of him available. So I think you're doing a great thing with podcasts by capturing these great uh, moments and voices and stories that people have about well, their experience at hashing. With the example of Sir Nookie, I just feel jealous of all the people that have known him for a decade or two and got to hash with him because in a quick hour of talking, it's just like a great hour of my life was spent with him. And yeah, yeah great guy. And yeah. He's one of those classic individuals. So he started hashing in his 60s, right? And <laughs> if he had found the hash in his 30s or 40s, he would have been just as enthusiastically into it. I mean, he mentioned to me a few times where, you know, you have to be the right stage in your life. And, you know, maybe earlier with his kids and stuff, he may not have been. But I just think his spirit and the way he, he was, and as long as I knew him, he, he just lived that spirit of the hats. Uh, it's always sad when we lose Asher, but he was a great friend and I miss him a lot. Uh, but like I said, it's great to be able to listen to the podcast with him in it. So great work and continue on with it. And I hope that we've got, hopefully not other people where that situation comes up, but you've got to have a, a great catalog of history of Asher through this mission you have here. The two episodes you have of him, I mean, really catch the essence of Nookie. Every once in a while, you get to listen to Nookie talk, and it's it's great. So I appreciate that what you're doing with this. Were you able to get to a Sir Nookie memorial at all? Yes. We had the service. It was the week after he passed, or probably almost two weeks, to be honest, by the time everyone got together. It was a, a great mixture. There were family and friends there. There's another running group that he participated in regularly with i think he talked about on the podcast the november project where you know he would be running stairs every wednesday with the november project or walking stairs later on you know so he had 
people and followers from everywhere, but it was really lovely. I mean, some of his kids have hashed with us, so they're well familiar with it. And definitely the whole family was very supportive of it and was wear whatever you want to the um, to memorial, you know, wear formal clothes if you want or wear a hash t-shirt. And a bunch of us had our he's not dead yet hash sweatshirts on and hasher his 69th birthday. There was a hash 69th birthday t-shirt that was one of the special round event things. So it was great to see people out and being able to uh, carry on the spirit. This guy private dick. I kind of got to know him just after his 40th birthday party because we were doing a backyard barbecue for it and we were sitting and talking and I kind of didn't know him that well up to that point and we just seemed to get into this really good chat around the campfire and he made a comment like Peanut, he, you're, you're so lucky early mid-20s there at that point and he says you're so lucky that you found the hash at this age he said you know i needed this so much earlier in my life and it would have meant so much more to me and all these other things that he said you know the way he'd sort of become a little more enlightened and etc great guy great hasher lots of fun and years later just before we were having our 1000th run weekend in edmonton it was like on the weekend of run 999 james bond run on the friday night and we all get to the run he Died of a, in a sleep, basically. Gone for a nap that day and didn't wake up. It was sad because, you know, we all, of course, toasted him and said, look, he, I know he would have wanted us to have continued on that weekend and enjoyed it and done all those things. And then on the Saturday for the 1000th run, we had this big ball buster run and a whole bunch of folks like myself, we all had these really crazy colored long leggings to, in his honor, he'd always have these crazy colorful leggings, uh, usually with a big sock. For the book, because sometimes the nickname was Private Dick or Private the Bulge Dick, because he'd have the sock stuffed in his stock. <laughs> so we all came with our stock, with our with the sock in there, so to speak. It's funny, like like I said, we're getting older and people are passing away. He's not the only one. There's been a couple other people, but yeah. I interviewed Pablo Piscobar, the GM of oh. Inter Americas, about ten days before he was shot. Oh my God! Oh wow! I had all this court. It was pretty bad because he was out at that property has out way out of town and there was solar powered wi-fi so it was pretty scratchy on his phone but i didn't publish the recording because that happened and i was just getting ready to publish it and then h2o's like ixnay on the publish a you can't yeah. publish that right so one day it now doesn't seem to be the right time h2o's not interested in being interviewed for the podcast no no, she's there's uh 100% of the limelight desire it lands on one person in this household. <laughs> but as far as lines want to know, is she good for relationships? The relationship's good for Ash? well, she's been on a couple times by walking in front of the camera when I'm talking to somebody she knows. So, her she's actually been in here a little bit, and we've heard from her, and uh, yeah, 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 no, I, I yeah, I, I've caught it. Okay. I've missed a couple in the last couple of weeks. I've just been crazy busy since the holidays wrapped up. So I'm, I'm not all fully caught up, but I think like up to like December or whatever, I think I've, I've definitely I've listened to all of them at least once. Wow. Yeah. You and Deep Throat, the Kiwi down down champion from Wellington. He's listened to them all. I don't know if anybody else has. He was an early subject and he manages the Kiwi national website. So we're in touch all the time and, well, hopefully we can all carry on for a lot longer and keep in contact. So it's great catching up with you, Mr. Peanut. Say hi to anybody out in Edmonton area who still remembers H2Ho and I. She sends her regards. On on. On on. 
There's a rap with Mr. Peanut, 1993 hashing for many decades. This is the On On Podcast. Hash your voices, hash your stories, hash your history. New episodes every week. Until next time, On On, this is Ross. To close the circle, here's the hash anthem sung by Mother Hash. Swing low, swing child, coming for to carry me home. Swing low.